Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, September 24th, 2017. The share ID numbers for Friday, September 22nd are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 10462. That's 10,462. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 10465. That's 10,465. Today, A Vision for You presents Pathway to a Miracle. The 12 steps serve a specific purpose. According to Bill Wilson, the 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which, if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. In other words, the 12 steps can keep us, as compulsive overeaters, abstinent, and happy. What is this but a miracle of healing? The 12 steps are introduced in Chapter 5 of the AA Big Book with these words. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Our path is the 12 steps. They are the heart of recovery. And to work the program is to work the 12 steps. To live the program is to live the 12 steps. Through following the spiritual directions and practicing these steps, we have a spiritual awakening about which there is no question. There is no doubt about it. We are moved to a new state of consciousness and being, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. This includes changed perceptions, attitudes, and behavior. The big book speaks of a transformation stemming from access to a source of strength, a power which before we had denied ourselves. That is the miracle of it. Joining us this morning is Victoria V., a recovered compulsive overeater from Minnesota. Victoria has been dedicated to trudging our path, and she's here to share her experience with all of us this morning. Welcome to the line, Victoria. The path on experience, strength, and hope that's been made possible by others passing it on to me. Um, I'm... I'm going to be sharing experiences that have led me to that miracle. But before I begin, I just give you a little bit of my qualifications. I came to OA in 1981 and never left. I came at a time when OA was tied up in the question that dominated our conversations for several decades and was often addressed in Lifeline, OA's magazine. The question was, did you have to be abstinent to work the steps, or did you work the steps to get abstinent? I slipped, binged, and relapsed my way through the rooms of OA for 21 years, but never left. 
I had never read or heard of the doctor's opinion and how only the only suggestion he had for such a hopeless condition was entire abstinence, what many of us these days have come to call black and white abstinence. The question wasn't resolved in my OA meetings, but it was resolved for me in 2002 when I found a different kind of OA meeting and I began working a structured and disciplined approach, which involved the daily commitment of my food plan, no longer devised by me, but given to me by a dietitian familiar with compulsive eating. And I committed it every day by phone to my sponsor and every meal I ate to this day has been weighed and measured and I celebrated 15 years of continuous abstinence last April 14th. I wanted to share with you the think or swim turning points in my recovery path, those times when I stood at a turning point, a turning point when I was at particular risk of picking up the food again or throwing away the program, when those risks were high, given my intrinsically sick personality as a compulsive eater of many decades, given the acute emotional pain, fear, and dread I experienced in situation after situation, and when at the same time I faced the dire necessity of living the spiritual principles of the big book embodied in our 12 steps, which are our pathway to recovery, that recovery which depends on living these principles. Those spiritual principles and the actions that bring them alive are not just a nice way to live for a hardcore compulsive eater like me. They are a dire necessity if I want to remain abstinent, if I want freedom, for the inner torment that is at the core of this hellish disease. In my disease, I specialized in cut and run. I specialized in blaming you. I specialized in being a victim of life, which absolved me from any responsibility for my suffering. There were only moments between feeling discomfort and picking up the food to relieve it. I had passed from using food as an escape into an unstoppable craving. The mental obsession had hijacked my life. I had no power to resist it, and I recognized the utter futility of even trying. The solution demanded that I do something different than I had ever done in my entire life. And the disease started very early for me, around the age of four or five. When I was faced with pain or fear or a crisis or boredom or humiliation and shame, I had to eat every day, every situation. No one stood between me and my food. So when my sick self collided with the requirements for freedom from food obsession, 
that demanded a new way of living, one grounded in spiritual principles that would be my springboards for action. That was the exact opposite of how I had been living. There were bound to be a number of sink or swim crisis points when my recovery hung on the thread of willingness, when the sway of the old sick self threatened and the old sick self threatened to overwhelm my efforts to live a new way of life that was diametrically opposed to everything I had been doing and was based on something I didn't even believe in, a higher power. But by this time, my disease had progressed to the point where I no longer had a moral core. My core was about getting whatever I felt I had to have, whatever I wanted, and coming up with elaborate rationalizations for my behavior to get it, behavior that I always justified, as I saw it. It was justified. When I felt victimized by life, watch out. Anything was justified. My view of reality was stunningly distorted without my knowing it. So when my sick self collided with the requirements of a new way of living, grounded in the spiritual principles, I faced a number of sink or swim situations when my recovery did hang in the balance. AA had it saying, what needs to change? Oh, not much, just everything. I laughed the first time I heard this, thinking, what a wild exaggeration. Well, it turned out for me to be the bald-faced truth. The only plausible explanations of how I was able to swim instead of sink in the situations I'm about to share with you that I lived through abstinently during the first 15 years of abstinence in this program. In other words, to do what I'd never in my life been able to do on my own. In fact, to do the opposite of what I had always been and done was a higher power that made it possible. I have decades of proof that not only could I not do it, I did not see how it would be possible even with a higher power. How could it be possible to live without the food, let alone as a profoundly changed human being? But one thing was crystal clear to me. The answer was in taking action, not in seeking hypothetical answers and explanations. I would be acting my way into a new life, not thinking my way into a new life or trying to talk my way into a new life. And I had to do it all without picking up the food. I didn't know what to call the power which I was told would make all these changes and all my efforts possible. 
so I called it simply grace. I called it grace because I associated grace with the mysterious, with bringing about gifts in a way that could not be rationally understood or empirically explained. For me, grace was any wondrous change that I experienced that I knew for certain I did not and I could not bring about. That was how I came to believe in a higher power. All the miraculous changes I experienced stacked up over time until they became an indisputable reality, goodness upon goodness, that I came to trust. I knew without a doubt I didn't have the power to bring about such astonishing changes, which altered or eliminated patterns of a lifetime patterns of being and behaving that had formed my life, that were the basis of my identity, who I was in the world. I called that power grace, and that grace became my higher power. Beginning with the near immediate removal of the mental obsession with food, one day at a time as I embarked on a path of entire abstinence, that is black and white abstinence, I no longer had the urge to eat anything that was not on my weighed measured food plan that I committed to my sponsor each day. I knew I could not have freed my own mind from a mental obsession, which had stuck to me like glue for all of my life, that nothing I did in the past could stop it and I'd pretty much tried it all. So I'd like to begin by talking to you about those sink or swim moments when the risks were really two. One was picking up the food again, in which case my recovery and all the goodness which had only begun to enter my life would be circling the drain. The other was losing the amazing changes within myself and within my life, my relationships, my relationship to the world that had begun to happen in my early fragile recovery. So I'd like to share those times in my memory that are still vivid, that represent the highest level of risk I experienced. The first required a tremendous amount of humility, which was really a, very foreign to me. I. I had a very fragile but puffed up ego. I could not be wrong and I could not admit being wrong. And I especially couldn't admit committing a wrong which was injurious to others. 
I had been told once, and I never forgot it, even though I thought it was baloney, that I had a problem with anger. I dismissed that out of hand. I thought it was one of the most ridiculous things I'd ever heard. But within my first couple of months in recovery, after having put down the food and throwing myself into the program, I started getting a vague inkling that I did have a problem with anger. And it really sickened me. I had insulated myself from an awareness with all the problems that I had in my behavior, the behaviors that harmed others, that undermined my own happiness. I've done that very effectively with food, and when I put the food down, it started seeping up between the cracks. And it troubled me. In fact, it sickened me. And then I remembered there was someone who had spoken at my, at my meeting who had himself shared his problem with anger. He had shared it at length and with a naked honesty that I've never heard before. He talked about many instances of his anger and how it had harmed others, but one really stuck in my memory. And that was when he said a time came when one of his children looked up at him with what he could only describe as terror. He hadn't taken any action to harm them, any physical action, but it was the anger itself which left his child in a state of terror. I was absolutely astonished that anyone could be so nakedly honest in a room full of 40 or 50 people in a meeting. And he was. That's, that was the extent of my memory. I didn't remember the rest. That left such an impression. The impact, hearing the impact that his anger had on someone he loved deeply. I felt so desperate. And I somehow recognized, maybe it was grace, that this was not a problem I was going to be able to control on my own, that I was not going to be able to eradicate my own anger. And I decided on a radical act, I reached out for help. I had been the person who specialized in going solo, in never revealing my weaknesses and my failures. And I called Frank, and I told him, Frank, I think I've got a problem with anger, and I remember almost choking on the words. And I asked for his help. I said... I am desperate. I am desperate. I believe I have the problem you talked about, and I can't live this way anymore, and I don't know what to do. Can I call you anytime I recognize 
I am starting to get really angry. Can I call you, please, for whatever you can share with me that could be of help? And Frank, being on the path of service, said, of course, Victoria, call me up. And I felt some relief when I hung up the phone. I continued to do my daily assignments of reading and writing, my depth of understanding and my of this step of the steps and my desire for recovery deepened. And it was a number of weeks later that I realized I had not called Frank. I counted the weeks. I think it was something like eight weeks. It was two months. And I recognized the impulse for anger had not been there. It seemed to have been removed. I attributed that to the surrender in my call to Frank of being willing to go to any length. And what I recognized for one of the first times was a defect of character. And I knew unchecked, unattended, unsurrendered, that character defect was going to take me back to the food. It wasn't only the damage it was going to do to other people. It was the damage that it was going to do to myself because I, I would fall down in that pit again. Another, another sink or swim moment happened when three months after I'd come into the program, I drove out to Montana where I had agreed to house sit on a river, beautiful place in the wilderness in Montana. A family was going to be leaving their home for a couple of months and a friend had arranged, asked me if I'd like to stay there. I said, oh, yeah, I would. So I practiced my program from that remote and beautiful place in Montana. I made my daily calls, and I started my fourth step. It was time to start my first step. But my first challenge when I arrived was the woman um, she and her husband who owned the house had prepared a very special meal for me, none of which I could eat. Nothing that she had fixed. She explained, I'm not usually a cook, but I made this especially for you. It was a casserole that was filled with things not on my food plan. And every gene of people placing in me was activated. That long habit of pleasing others. And I prayed and I choked out the words, hopefully with a little bit of grace, I am so sorry. I am on a medically restricted food plan and I am not able to eat the food that you have so lovingly prepared for me. It smells delicious. I thank you so much. And I was given words in that situation as well that I've never used before. Words of graciousness, words of affirmation, words 
of genuine regret. And I ate my the food that I had prepared and brought. Sometime later, I, while I was working on my fourth step, it was it was a process that really is burned in my memory even to the present. I think it was one of the probably the biggest turning point in my life giving myself over to that fourth step at depth. I'd done previous four steps. I wasn't out of the food. I wasn't able to dig deep because I was half drunk on my substance of choice. This time was different. And throughout that fourth step, I had a simple prayer that I prayed over and over and over again, and that was, God, please, Please help me to see what I could never see on my own. Please help me to see what I could never see on my own. And that prayer was answered time and time and time again as I quietly sat ready to receive and was given more insight into my very sick inner life and outer behavior. One of those recognitions was a vision of a kind of where I really lived in my secret place, the secret place I lived that no one saw. And that place was four stories beneath the New York subway system. It was a bunker. It looked like a bunker inside. And I had a bunk there. And that's the place I knew I belonged. And that's the place I lived. Now, that was a pretty strong answer to prayer. It revealed the self-loathing the lack of esteem, the shame, the fatal sense of never being enough that had driven so much of my sick behavior with others and had certainly fueled my disease of compulsive eating. And then an, an equally wondrous thing An insight just came to me. It was given to me. It was that grace working again. And it was simply no wonder you could never love. No wonder you could never love anybody. Really love anybody. And before that moment, I don't know that I even had a clear picture of what real love was. And that, all that insight did, besides making me very sad, I wept over in sorrow, over the sadness of it, was to raise the stakes of going forward because I wanted to be able to love. I wanted to be capable of love. 
so I moved forward with my inventory. And although I'd done a previous fourth step while I was in the food, I, I was I was earnest. I made a ninth step amends that could have sent me to prison. That's how earnest I was in wanting to get well. But the problem was I still hadn't been able to put the food down. So obviously OA's struggle over what what has to come first, putting down the food or working the steps, was answered. But this was different. The food was down now. And I revisited things which I had dealt before with in only the most distant and highly varnished, polished over kind of ways. Some very ugly realities in my past that I believe were probably associated with abuse that I repeated in ways that was very harmful to others. And I was allowed to see this abuse. And to know that it belonged in my fourth step inventory. And I had been advised, don't get ahead of yourself. Don't think ahead to making amends. Don't think ahead to even telling anybody else. You know, that time will come. And it did come when I came back and it was time to do my fifth step. And I revealed my most, my most ugly and guilt-laden secret of how I had abused someone else to my sponsor, but I did it in a way that I was connected with my heart and soul because the food was down. It was different than before when I had a recitation of what I had done. I got it out in all the ugly details to my sponsor who I had dreaded telling. I had This was definitely one of those think or swim points. I did not want to be that honest. It made me feel like throwing up. But I went forward, and my sponsor's reply was, thank you for telling me now you need to choose three other people you trust in this program, and you tell them. I learned early on that this is a program not only of honesty, but this is a program of helping each other, that we don't go it alone. I did not run, although I wanted to. I called three people. I felt mortification, and most of all, I felt terror. But I had learned to work the fear prayer. God, God, please remove this fear and turn my attention to what you would have me be. And it was possible for me. Another sink or swim point in my recovery, and this one's curious to remember in preparing for this talk, was something was so dire and so overwhelming to me. And to this day, I can't remember 
anything about what it was that I was going to pack up my car and move to another part of the country. Now, I'd never experienced that before. But I knew I was in a place where I was going to do it. And I know it was related to the program somehow and facing myself and the underside of who I thought I was. I can't remember the specifics. And I struggled with that an entire day thinking, Victoria, if you don't reach out for help, you're going to do this. You're going to be packing this car and leaving for you don't even know where. I was ready to cut and run the thing I knew best how to do all my life because these steps were taking me places I had never gone before, places that I had to be taken before the transformation I now live was possible. So I did the unsinkable. Again, I reached out for help. I reached out for help. I called someone who I thought had a strong program. She was kind of tough, but I thought maybe she could help me. I called her up. She wasn't a sweetie pie. She didn't answer with this honey sweet kind of voice, but she said, well, I get off work at 5. Can you meet me at Starbucks at such and such a place? And I said, I'll be there. And I was there. She was there. I have no idea of what I said, except I did tell her, I'm ready to leave. I'm ready to pack my car and move, and I called you because I knew I would do it if I didn't reach out for help. And I knew in doing that I would be leaving this program behind me. I don't remember what she said to me. The miracle was I called her. The miracle was she came. The miracle was we were working, we were walking down the same path. She understood. She had worked these steps. She had carried them into the wreckage of her life and faced it, honestly. And I kept putting one foot in front of the other. Another sink or swim moment that I remember was at the sixth step because by that time I had done such a fearless and searching fourth step. It spread far, wide, and deep that the picture was clear and it was not pretty. I was a whole different person than I thought I was, than I knew I was. And when I got to the sixth step, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. I realized that if this higher power removed all these defects of character, myself as I knew myself would no longer exist. I would be dead. I wouldn't exist anymore. You know, I, I think the 12 and 12 talks about the hole in the donut, you know, if, that what will there be left of me, you know, if I really am entirely ready 
to let God remove all Victoria, we are not hearing you at the moment. I'm hoping you can still all hear me out there. Can you? Right now I do. Very well. Continue. Okay. I got a message from somebody from somewhere about the meeting. She does often visit, but we hear you now. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, so I was at the sixth step. And what I feel I faced if I was entirely ready to let the God of my understanding remove all these defects of character would be dying. That the person who was left in my skin was someone I didn't recognize. I did not know. And that felt like death to me. I would be gone and someone else would be here. And I stayed stuck there a long time. I, it was weeks before I could take the step because I grasped the enormity of what would change and what would be left that I recognized, which was nearly nothing. Another time of sink or swim, pick up the food and die, stay with the program and move forward to those promises. After that time of hanging back, I took that step and I humbly asked that God remove all these defects of character when I prayed the seventh step prayer in a depth I've never prayed it before. And those promises began to come true. I'll say more about that in a minute. The last crisis, potential crisis that I, actually it was a crisis at the time that I wanted to talk about was a little later in my recovery. I actually there too. I was working through my my amends, and there was. I decided this time I would try to search for the little girl I had harmed. Somehow I remembered her last name, and it was in another state. The, clue, the clues I had were so spare, they were so minuscule, that the idea of ever finding her seemed impossible. But I decided to try. I made call after call, holding on to one little piece of data that led me to another link that led me to another link until... What I never believed was possible actually happened. I called her and she answered the phone. I told her, I'm someone you may not remember. I knew you when you were a little girl. I was your babysitter. And I'm, I'd like to get together with you 
I live in Minneapolis, and I know you live in South Dakota, but I'd like to drive there and possibly meet you for coffee and um, just share some information with you that that I think and hope may be helpful to you. And amazingly, after asking me a few more questions, she agreed. I drove. I made that trip. We arranged to meet up in a restaurant. That's where she was comfortable. And when I got to the restaurant and she was standing in the place she introduced herself, her husband was there with her. I was in shock. I asked my higher power, what do you have in mind here for me? How can this be? What do I do next? And Grace, Grace said, move forward. So I met them both warmly. We sat down in a booth. Her husband, the young woman who had been the little girl and myself, and I made a full, open, and honest amends. Then quite miraculously, after those amends, we had a conversation together when we discovered we both had ties with AA. They in and out, and we talked programs. It was one of many miracles that I experienced in working these steps. That still brings absolute amazement to me in their power and in the way grace moves to transform our lives, to lift them out of the scrap heap of addiction into a life beyond our wildest dreams. The last situation I want to share with you, I had a sponsor who had a great strength of telling me to turn to page XYZ in the big book. First paragraph, read it to me, please. And one of those passages, she must have done that 50 times. And it was in relation to the challenges I was experiencing in my family life, and specifically with a family member who had addiction problems of her own, which was threatening the relationship. And it was a very primary family relationship. And the passage that she would ask me to read was, if I, I thought I had it here. Oh, on page 99, first full paragraph. After they have seen tangible results, the family perhaps, will perhaps want to go along. These things will come to pass naturally and in good time, provided, however, the alcoholic continues to demonstrate that he can be sober, considerate, and helpful, regardless of what anyone says or does. 
after they have seen tangible results, the family will perhaps want to go along, that is, with our spiritual way of living. These things, perhaps, in other words, this passage gave me no certainty whatsoever that it was going to happen if I continued working my program. It didn't say if you continue working your program, Victoria, this is going to happen. This relationship that you value so highly will be salvaged and you'll be able to stay. Many, many times I lived in that passage and that became my bar, my bar for behavior, no matter what, irregardless of what anyone says or does, that I can continue to demonstrate that I can be sober, considerate, and helpful. As it turns out, that continued on a year and a half. And I asked my sponsor, how long does this go on? Um, And she said, well, you'll have an answer when you have an answer. You know, the word is perhaps. Well, one day, one day, out, out of what seemed like the blue, but it had to be out of grace, when I had recognized that this person's using was now beginning to negatively impact my own recovery, fray my own programs. I was given all the words. I was given the moment to speak, and I was given the words to say. And when my, when my family member turned to me and said, what is it you want from me? And I couldn't have answered that question probably a minute earlier. And the words just flowed out of my mouth with clarity and ease. And they were, what I want you to do is to get an appointment for a chemical dependency assessment. I want you to honestly answer their questions. And I want you to act on any recommendations they may give you with regard to future needs that you may have and they it was exactly what was needed it was inspired and it wasn't coming from me these are the kinds of moments when stacked all together became the higher power I didn't believe in when I started working this program I knew this was grace, leading me, giving me the words. I was not contentious. I was not angry. I, I was able to feel love, but I was clear and I was firm. And in fact, what I never imagined would happen, the assessment took place, treatment was recommended, and my family member entered and completed treatment. We have a loving, trusting, redeemed, and immensely precious relationship 
to this day. All of these changes in my life and living from the inside out a quality of being that I couldn't have asked for because I couldn't have imagined have been the result of working these three these these twelve steps and in hanging in through those times of sink or swim, holding on to the boat, holding on to the lifeboat, not leaving the hesitation or the doubt that I was feeling until I was ready to move forward because on my own, there was only hell waiting for me were I to go back to the food. And so that's what I'd share with you, um, you know, what made it all possible is grace, that grace which has become my higher power and which I believe, as the big book says, is available to every one of us in our own time, on our own path, through our own way. And with that... I am very happy to engage you with questions. Thank you so much, Victoria, for sharing your profound transformation, transformed mind, transformed life. Thank you for sharing your personal insights and experience with all of us this morning. Victoria's contact information will be given at the conclusion of the recording. Stay tuned for that. The share ID for this morning's presentation is 10469. That's 10,469. We will now transition to a question and answer segment. And you'll need to press star 1 to unmute to identify yourself, please, including the first initial of your last name. Lindsay Good morning. Katie G. from Boston. Lindsay B. Kathy K. Okay, this is who I have thus far. I heard Lindsay B., Katie G., Barbara E., Kathy K. Who did I miss? All right, let's start with that grouping then. If everybody could mute except for our speaker, of course, Victoria, and Lindsay B. Okay. Hello, uh, good morning, um, Victoria. What a what a wonderful um, sharing. Thank you so much. You said a lot of things that um, were just, I just so deeply resonated with. And I'm wondering if you might be able to say a little bit more about um, you know, coming back a second time and, and doing your fourth step and then coming to this place of realizing you needed to make amends. And I'm thinking of the, the, the little girl, but um, I'm also wondering how was your process that you, um, in coming up with, you know, do I make amends for absolutely everything? And were there some parts of it that you thought just might make it harder for the person, it might harm them? Or it could actually harm you in that you said something about you know, something that you could have gone to jail for. How did you make the decisions? Uh, you know, um, I'm sure you're going to God, but 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 it, it, does my question make sense? If you could share a little bit more about your process with that. Sure, I'd be glad to. And I, I certainly wrestled with those questions myself. 
the earlier situation I mentioned where I risked going to jail was a different situation, and it involved money. Um, it involved money. Uh, that was not the situation. I think in this situation, as I was really, I was 12 at the age, uh, at the age of 12 at the time these things happened, that I carried so much guilt and remorse for. Um, I was a very young babysitter. I I don't believe that um, the legal system might have been involved in a clinical criminal kind of capacity, but I imagine I I suppose I could have been sued. Um, I didn't think about that at the time. And thinking about it now, I don't, it would not have stopped me. Mm-hmm. I, I just knew I needed to follow the directions as they were written in the big book, if I wanted the promise, we shall not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. That promise haunted me. I profoundly desired that promise to be realized, and I was willing to do whatever it took. Um, so I... I you know, every every situation has its specifics. I have found the stories in the big book immensely helpful in giving examples of making amends in some rather dire situations and the kind of consultation that took place um, sometimes with the family uh, if the family would be very directly affected by the amends to be made. Um, so it wasn't simply, a, you know, it was a very considered and thoughtful process, which if you have the kind of question I think you may have, um, should involve consultation where you have the freedom to be to be open um, that was certainly with several sponsors with me and in prayer. Um, but again, the big book gives three or four rather concrete situations where the consequences could be dire. And when family are affected, how do we, how might we find our way through questions like that? Because there can't they can't really be answered by a single generalization i think hmm. thank you it's, that it's, was extremely helpful thanks you're Lynn welcome. Bibi. thank you for the question katie g from boston your turn good I'm sorry. Good morning, my friends. Thank you so much, everyone, for your service. It was a lovely, um, really wonderful, heartfelt talk. My question is, could you talk a little bit more about when you get stuck now with character defects coming up over and over again and how you continue to 
um, grow and develop, um, obviously with the instructions of the book, but just wanting to hear more um, about what you find helpful. Thank you so much. Yes, Katie, wonderful question. Um, I find when issues come up now, they tend to be more sly and under the radar. Um, and in that sense, you know, the um, step 10, that daily inventory and the spot check inventory, I find, is, is really important. Um, the inventory at the end of the day, very helpful. Spot check is much more when, where, where I aspire to live. Um, because a lot of things can cause damage that we require later cleanup that could be prevented. And to the extent I'm living in a state of God consciousness, those spot check inventories will tend to flow, you know, into my attention most naturally. To the extent I am too tired, too preoccupied with how much I have to get done or deadlines or other obligations um, that typically reflects my spiritual condition requires some work because when I am rushing through life, I cannot be sufficiently conscious of my behavior, my motives, um, and my need to take a step back and say, whoa, I think I stepped on somebody's whole foot there, not just their toes. I need to take some action right now. I, I find one of the biggest challenges has been deepening my relationship with the God of my understanding more and more and more. I, and I've taken action in the last year to make some in commitments in my life to allow that. Um, I have just finalized arrangements to make a 30-day silent retreat um, in March um, in a remote location. I have, I have become um, a student of the contemplative path. You know, the 12 and 12 tells us, and in step 11, that how we enlarge our spiritual lives, the practice that we embrace, is an individual matter. It's an individual matter, which is a very important statement, I think. And later in recovery, I had been experiencing a longing for a deeper connection, which I think was just a natural stage in my spiritual growth, 
but I could ignore that or actually attend to it. And to attend to it, I had to figure out how was I going to attend to it. And for me, I I could trace back in my life a longing for the sacred, a longing for something I could not name, something nameless and invisible from my earliest years. And I have decided to pursue that path with an intentionality and a depth and a commitment of time that was entirely new for me. And it's, I think, one of the most important decisions I've made recently. And as a result of that practice and committing to that practice, when I am able to honor those commitments, I am living a much more God-conscious life. I am much more moment-to-moment cognizant of when I am off the beam, when I am irritable, restless, discontent, when I am stepping back onto that old pattern of one-upsmanship or, you know, moving off of my side of the street and onto your side of the street. So I, um, I feel like that's, that's been very important for me and that time has that time in in this form of meditation and prayer, wordless prayer, prayer without thought, a prayer of deep presence and longing of a God of my understanding has helped enlarge my spiritual life in in some pretty unprecedented ways. And this, of course, would never happen if at any one of those sink or swim points I decided to pick up the food. Thank you, Katie G, for your question. Barbara E, you're next. Star one to unmute Barbara E. Oh, sorry, it took that long. Technology, man plans, technology laughs. Thank you so much, Victoria, for that incredible share. It was so honest and beautifully done. I'm so impressed by the length you went to find that young lady that you babysat for. I have a, a rather mundane question, the one you posed at the beginning of the share. Which comes first? the abstinence or the steps. This is, I understand it's your personal opinion. Did they both come together hand in hand for you? You said you worked with a nutritionist and a sponsor who you committed your food to. I'd just like some clarification on that. Thank you again. Thanks. Thanks for your question, Barbara. Um, Well, I'll answer that question from two different points in time. My my first 21 years in our fellowship when I was slipping and sliding in and out of the food constantly and which our whole fellowship was struggling 
for an answer to that question. Um, when, in fact, Roseanne wrote an article in Lifeline which talked about how many of our meetings had been closed down, and there were a whole lot of them, and how a hotel manager had told her they loved having OA more than any other organization come with their convention because it it was the organization in which they made the most money from room service. Um, I I wasn't able to answer that question until I had the experience myself of surrendering to a structured and disciplined format of working the program, which kept my nose buried in the big book and writing about what it meant for my life, no hypotheticals, and receiving a food plan instead of inventing one and changing it whenever I felt like it and committing that weight and measured food to my sponsor every day. It was through the process of doing that and the clarity that I then experienced, an unprecedented clarity, and the spiritual growth that started happening immediately when they were both in tandem. I had never experienced that before. And that answered my question. Um, you know, that answered my question. Prior to that, I lived a life of rationalizations. My first set of exams in graduate school, I had to have two large bags of M&Ms. I mean, the big bags while I was studying for my first final exams. Never mind that it took me to the emergency room and I threw up on the table and they thought I might have a brain aneurysm. Um, no, I was just being a compulsive overeater. I never had the chance to experience what it meant and what was possible when the food was down until the food was down and I was working the steps at depth. So having lived both lives, I can tell you that trying to do both at once for this compulsive eater availed me nothing but more desperation, and my disease progressed. It continued to progress. This is not a disease that stands still. For every day I practiced the disease, it grew. Thank you, Barbara E., for your question this morning. Kathy Kay, you're up. Thank you, Leah, for your service, and thank you, Victoria. Uh, I really appreciated your share today. Um, you've partially answered my question already by talking about what you're doing currently to deepen your relationship with your higher power, but I wonder if you could say a little bit more about, you kept referring to grace, that that's what you labeled um, that uh, higher power that enabled you to move through those sink or swim episodes. Um, can you uh, say anything about the evolution of grace for you and your conception of it and how it changed over time? 
What a wonderful question. Um, I would be happy to try. Yes. I I don't think I shared earlier that actually I came to OA for the first time before that 21 years of relapsing and slipping in the room started. I went to a meeting four or five years earlier. I sat in the chairs and I heard the word God after I'd been there about 15 minutes and I promptly stood up and walked out of the room and I didn't come back literally four years. Um, that, that was the condition of my spiritual life. You know, looking back, I think it's really interesting that I raged at a God I didn't believe in because um, I was sure defying, I was defiant and raging at a God whom I blamed for great pain that I had suffered and great pain that I saw being inflicted on people from time immemorial all over the world. And I was all too happy to place that blame um, on what I called God, um, which I had stopped believing in that God at about the age of 14. And you know, was at that time, I was at that time, um, had been elected the president of my youth fellowship within the church I was a part of. And I, I went to the minister and I said, I can't continue in this role. I don't believe these things anymore. And he said, well, you just need to continue. No explanation. And, and I did continue. I felt, I felt like a fake and I was a fake, but I continued. But you know, the hunger that I felt predates that experience. And I, the more I have heeded it, the more I have given it space, the more space it has taken. And this, this path that I am on presently does not come out of dogma. It, it, it doesn't come out of an empirical body of proof or history. It is. It comes out of experience and the, what's called the contemplative tradition, which goes back centuries and eons. You know, even predates the big religions. Um, Are you hearing me out there? I do hear you, Victoria. Okay, somebody else is calling in. I was not sure what was happening. Um, I, I'm not, let me pick up my line of thinking again. Um, I, I grew into my belief through desperation. It was through this program. It was through the experience of surrender. The first time I tried to get on my knees after I came into Howe, they wouldn't bend. And I don't have arthritis. It was not a physical condition. I think my pride, my false pride, my, my abhorrence at the notion of a god um, was so embodied and, and my 
my spiritual condition, the disease of self, that I, could, I had a very hard time bending my knees. And I wanted to get on my knees because I thought if I'm going to feel prayer, if I'm going to feel prayer, maybe I can feel it better on my knees. And I do pray on my knees. Especially, I pray, and not at all times, but especially when I am struggling, when I am struggling, I get on my knees, and it is because I want to involve my whole body in prayer. It is my way of saying, God, you can and I can't. You can and I can't. My body's talking to you, not just my mind and my spirit. Um, I'm trying to remember the rest of your question if I've really answered what what you were asking. You know, it's definitely been a path. Oh, the grace. Yes, the grace. The grace simply was in situation after situation, things happened that I knew I couldn't do. And they were happening anyway. I knew there was no conceivable way in the world I could have done such a thing. I couldn't have even thought it up, let alone done it. But yet it was happening, and it was beautiful, and it carried me to a new awareness, or it carried me to a new freedom from myself, and it wasn't me ever. So I didn't come in believing in God, but what I experienced, became God for me. And I called it first grace, just recognize, recognizing that things were happening in my life that I was not bringing about, could never have the capability to bring about. And I was awed and I was grateful and I was astonished. I was astonished and I was a believer because I experienced it. You know, there's nothing like experience to teach you what is real. And it was real. So I went with it. And by go, I gave myself to the truth of it is happening and it isn't me. That was my first higher power. It is happening. It is being brought about and I am not doing it. I called it grace. And eventually, I came to call it the God of my understanding. And in truth, it doesn't matter to me what I call it. It is what I long for. It is, it is, it is the most precious dimension of my life. It has grown from being the source of my survival to becoming the most precious, source of living, of being. And it's through it's through taking taking the journey of the steps over fifteen years. It didn't happen in the third year. It began happening in the first year and it has continued happening through all those years. That is the miracle. It doesn't stop. That is the adventure. That is the excitement. It doesn't ever straight line. As the big book says, it is a limitless load that we can mine for our entire lives. 
Thank you. Thank you, Kathy Kay, for the question. And we'll invite another group to for questions now. This will be our final invitation for questions. Star one to unmute to announce yourself, please. Lauren T. Lauren T. Anyone else? Joy B. Tulsi M. Joy B. Mary Lee R. in Oregon. Sharon R.S. Okay, this is who I have thus far. I have a Lori T. There's somebody B that I missed. Kathy M. Joy B. Mary Lee R. Sharon R.S. Who has the last initial of B that I perhaps missed? Toby W. Leslie M. Leslie M. Was there a Kathy M. as well? And out of respect for our speaker, Victoria, how are you on time? Toby W. Yes, Toby, thank you. Victoria, how are you on time? This obviously I'm, I'm available on time. You, if I would appreciate it if you let me know how much time we have available. I I can continue. Okay, excellent. Well, let's we'll finish this group. Uh, generally, we close at ten o'clock. This will take us beyond ten, but I'm available to do so if you are as well. Yeah. I okay. Can. Excellent. Okay, let's begin with Lori T, please. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, and thank you for the share. Um, I think I heard two things that, that struck me as curious, and it's about the way your steps were conducted. I, I, if I got these wrong, if you could still elaborate for me on how it went, and maybe that will clear up my confusion. I believe I heard you say on a certain part of your step four that you called three other individuals, you were asked to call three other individuals and share it with them. Um, I haven't heard of that practice, but I don't know how everyone practices. And I was curious about not only the nature of that experience, but also the purpose of that experience. And then secondly, I believe you said that you waited a period of weeks to take your step six. And I was curious about, again, the nature of that, um, the purpose of that, and that one more specifically, what happened with you and this this relationship of grace. It, it seemed like you said there was some hesitancy about taking that step and how you eventually um, came to some, some resolution that it was the right time. And however you can answer those, I would appreciate it so much. Thank you. All right. I'll try my best and try to remember all the parts of your question. Um, actually, what I shared with you about, let's see, in step four, can you just give me a quick reminder in step four? I'm, I'm losing my train of thought here. 
um, it had to do with when I called three people. Okay, when I my my sponsor who heard my fourth step um, advised me to call three people. It wasn't, in fact, while I was working on my fourth step. It my sponsor advised me to share this information with three other trusted people of my choice within our fellowship after I had completed my fifth step with her. That was the sequence in which that occurred. And I believe the reason that she suggested that is she undoubtedly picked up on my fear and trembling and sense of being an irredeemable outsider by virtue of the harm I had caused someone else. And I did, in fact, have that sense about myself. Um, it, 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 was, it was very injurious to me as well as to the child who had been a recipient. So I believe because this is a program of a we and we help each other that my sponsor, even though she herself had only a year of recovery, she walked on water to me. Um, she had much more than I did. She knew that it would be important for me to reach through those walls that I had created around this truth I lived with, which separated me from a sense of belonging to the human race. And that by so doing, by identifying people myself, she didn't give me the people. She asked me to choose three people that I trusted. And they were all in our program, working the program I was working, that it would help me to take yet further steps into coming to belong, just have a felt, sense of belonging to the human race rather than being an irredeemable outsider. It was a very wise suggestion and uh, required really tremendous courage. It was with fear and trembling that I proceeded, but I was on the path. I was committed to put one foot in front of the other no matter what it took. The reason I waited so long in, in step six, and I got stuck basically, is I, because the change, what needed to change in me, because I was seeing myself for the first time so clearly, the sickness, how deep and wide it ran in me, in the core of my being, the selfishness, the self-centeredness, the dishonesty, especially with myself um, as well as with others, the, the resentments that I carried, the sense of victimization that I used to blame other people for things so that I wasn't responsible for anything, all that sickness. But it was what I knew. It was what I recognized. It was who I'd been. And when I read those promises, those promises described somebody else that I was going to be if those promises were given to me, if they were realized in my life, I realized I won't even recognize myself. And so it felt like I would die. 
it felt like the me I knew wouldn't exist anymore, literally, like a death. And it scared me, and it caused me mourning. Like, am I ready to die? You know, do I want this me I've been all my life as messed up and destructive and hopeless and despairing and suicidal at times and compulsively driven to eat and food obsessed? Do I really, I don't know what this next one is going to be, this next person. It felt like it was going to be somebody new. And you know, the truth is, it was somebody new. And I am somebody new. And I am, I think, finally, transformation isn't just a word. This is what it means. This is how it happens. This is how it's lived out. I hear myself responding to people in ways I don't even have to think about. It comes naturally. When I walk around the lake, what I think about now is, is the smile I give strangers, the good morning and smile I give strangers, is it really showing the love I feel? That's my problem. Never, never in a million years would I have had that problem in the food. I, my problem now, higher order problem, is expressing the love I feel because I have a deep desire to express it. And sometimes I get in my own way because I still have clay feet like everybody else on the line. That hasn't changed. But I care about that. It matters to me. I want to be loving. And I can do it with a smile. I can do it with my eyes. We know that look. We see it in the rooms of people who are recovered, that light in their eyes. I want to share that. So I guess that's that's how I would answer your question. It was about death, and I guess on some level I knew it was, and I jumped anyway, and thank God I did. Thanks so much. Thank you, Lori T. Toby W., your turn. Star one to unmute, Toby. Sorry about that. I was pressing the wrong thing. This is Toby W. in Boston um, in recovery. Uh getting so much out of your talk this morning. And the question I have, and you might have answered it, but I'd like to hear it again, is getting to the place where you know that God is taking care of you. That I look at some situations in my life and I know that that happened. But as far as the food, I never thought that God would help me with the food and I think I'm looking for a feeling and I'd like you to talk about that if you would please you think that you're looking for a feeling is that what you yes. said yes a feeling a feeling about knowing what? a feeling about God being in my life okay 
All right. Um, you understand well, how you... Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And I'm pondering, I'm pondering what you said and, and how best to respond. I, for me, and I do believe our paths are all unique. I, there may be some, you know, commonalities, but in the end, we each have a unique path toward the God of our understanding. I went from cursing God in Brazil when I stood over the lifeless body of someone who was, his head was wedged between a curb and a car. I went back to my room and I cursed God. How curious to curse a God that doesn't exist, right? Um, I guess my way to do it was through the truth. I had to have a God that I could let it rip with. I had to have a God that whatever I was thinking or feeling or needing, I, I could express it. I had to have a God that I could be, be, the, be truthful with. Um, and my desperation, quite honestly, carried me most of the way by the time I got there. And the steps carried me the rest of the way. You know, four through nine, putting down the food, and then four through nine, those, those are the transformational steps. Those steps took me into a being that I wasn't before, and that being had a and has a very direct experience of God. And how I often experience that, that have that experience of God, it's longing. It's longing, but it's no, no, it's no longer longing for a God that I'm doubtful exists or doesn't exist. It is longing for a God I have experienced for the last 15 years in my life through grace. It is a longing out of love. It is a longing out of desire, desire, um, because that God is the most important reality in my life. And only the whole journey could have brought me there. There were no shortcuts. And it didn't happen on Victoria's plan. It didn't happen on Victoria's timeline. It was all higher power territory. I showed up. I, I stayed abstinent. And I worked the steps like my life depended on them because I knew it did. And those steps carried me ever more deeper into the God of my understanding. So that's about what I, I think I can share on that. 
Thank you, Toby W., for the question. Kathy M., your turn. Star 1 to unmute, Kathy M. Perhaps I heard incorrectly. Joy. Was there a Joy M? Yes, I'm... Yes, I'm Joy B. Joy B. Go right ahead. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm recovering also. Um, I felt your share was very profound. I felt deeply humbled. Um, uh, I uh, wonder if, I, I think you've already answered this several times, but I have two questions. Did you fear, did you have overwhelming fear surrendering um, would be devastating emotionally due to having so much pain and resentment you held on to? And the second question, are you a born-again Christian? Okay, let me answer the um Second question first. Um, my understanding of our traditions is that religion is an outside issue. So I am not going to respond to the second question. The first question, I'd appreciate it if you could repeat because I'm not certain that I'm clear about what you were asking. Well, did you uh, feel a lot of fear um, when you decided to surrender? Um, And did you feel it was going to be devastating emotionally uh, due to having so much pain and resentment that you held on to? Okay. I, you know, that's a really, those are just very good questions. Uh, for reflection, and I think in my case, because I had so many years of living in the disease, you know, 21 years is a long time. I was desperate in those times. I remember the year we had the National OA Convention here in Minneapolis, and I went to every session. I tried to reach speakers who spoke. I was desperate for an answer. How did you get this freedom? How did you get abstinent? Um, I I stood on the side of a six-lane highway and vomited, having to ask my spouse to stop the car. I have to throw up on the way to the ER. I had compulsively eaten so much, you know, on the full observance of people all over the place. I mean, that's... That's where my disease was taking. I mean, I was, I was so demoralized. I was eating massive amounts of food that I knew would trigger migraine headaches, and I didn't stop. I, I was in full possession of the disease. The disease had me. So when you talk about how much fear I felt, I was kind of in a place of, you know, 
I am I am so beaten by this disease. I am so demoralized. I'm done. I'm done. It's probably taken me a whole lot longer to get here than other people. But I am done. I cannot live this way. My face was gray. I had no color in my skin. I had... I had no self-respect left. I had no, it, it had taken my will to live. So I think fear wasn't an issue until I started experiencing the specific requirements of recovery as they're described in the big book and embodied in the steps and their spiritual principles for living. And I had strong sponsorship. I had tough love. I didn't have somebody to just pat my head and say, oh, you're going to be fine, Victoria. I had somebody who said, what about your side of the street here? You're missing something. And the one time, the one time I remember questioning something about the abstinence and what was required in abstinence, there was a long pause on the other end of the phone, and then my sponsor simply said, I thought you wanted this. I never forgot that. And that brought me right back to my senses, right back to to being conscious. Yes, I want this more than life itself. There is nothing I want more than this. And my desire of wanting freedom was stronger than my fear. And the more I got into the steps, and into the steps, into coming to believe, into getting on my knees, into surrendering problems and the illusion that I could solve them myself, that was a relief. You know, the more I shed the bondage of self, the more grace was working miracles in my life, the smaller the fear got. But it had to start with putting down the food. I knew that. And I also knew because of all those years, I was dead if I didn't. You know, it was a life, it was a living death. I don't know anything about zombies, really, but I I understand there's some, you know, it has something to do with they're not really alive anymore, but they're walking around as if they are. Well, that was the life I knew I had waiting for me. So at that point, there was no fight left in me. I remember saying to myself when I went to my first meeting where I knew people worked a structured and disciplined approach and they weighed and measured their food and I had bad mouth them. I thought they were a bunch of food Nazis. I had contempt without investigation and I became willing to go to that meeting. I thought, uncle, I'm done. I walked in the room, but before I got there, I thought, now, if this is only a diet, 
dressed up in spiritual trappings, I know it's not going to help me because I've done that. Most of my life, that's what I've done. And if that's all this is, this isn't going to work either. And then I have no other options. I walked into that room and I saw other hardcore compulsive eaters like me. I mean, really hardcore, who had years face down in the disease. And they had this light in their eyes. They, their face, faces were luminous. They had a luminosity about them. The weight was gone, but that wasn't what impressed me. It was the light, and it was they were not stressed. They were abstinent. The food was down. And they weren't looking like maniacs. They weren't acting like maniacs. Because I knew if I put the food down on my own, you know, within 10 or 15 minutes, I would be in a frenzy. I would feel trapped in a room with a gun to my head. I would feel like I would have to break down the walls if necessary to get my drug of choice. And here they were not using food. That was clear from the weight that had been dropped. And they were happy, joyous, relaxed, free. I thought, if these people told me they swim to China to find this, I'm going to get in the water. I remember that. And I was in the boat. And I never set another foot outside it. Because I knew what it meant if I did. I had no more illusions that I could control anything and that my life would be anything other than the garbage pile and the desire to die that it had become. So it was not a hard choice. I'm sure a lot of people probably got there earlier than I did. So. Thank you for that question. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you, Joy B. Mary Lee R., your turn. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, Victoria, and everyone on the line. This is Mary Lee R. in Eugene, Oregon, in recovery for today. My question got answered so many different ways. I thank you so much for your clarity and your willingness to share your experience, strength, and hope. Thank you. Thanks, Mary Lee. Thank you very much. Sharon R.S., your turn, star one, to unmute. Good morning. Thank you, Leah. Mm -hmm. Hi there. And uh, thank you so much, Victoria. I um, am so grateful for your presentation this morning and the sincerity and the depth and uh, the light, the light. And um, I remember the days when I came in and that con- that the light shining from people. And I see that light shining from you today. I um, was, was uh, really struck by... Um, uh, for some reason, I, read, I wrote love equals moving slowly through life to make sure that I stay connected with my higher power. And I don't know if he said that or if I just was, was scribbling here and that's what I heard. Um, 
And I, so if you could um, touch on that in your response. And the, the contemplative life, I am drawn to that. But um, how, uh, I have a horde of children, so it's, <laughs> uh, if you could speak to how do you do that in the horde, you know, when you've got, you know, a, um, a, uh, a lot of, of uh, uh, needy uh, people in your life. And, um, and I would also like to have you respond to how do you use your program to further the contemplative life. And, 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 um, and I want to be sure, we're, I, I, what is a contemplative life? And so, I, I, you know, is that a religion? Is it, is it just uh, a, a lifestyle? So I have several questions. I hope that that's clear. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I may need to ask you to repeat some of what you um, just, some of the questions that you just asked. Um, in terms of the contemplative life, it's not a religion per se, although it's certainly embodied in various world religions, including a Christian tradition, but other traditions as well. But beyond that, I, I don't want to speak to it today, again, because of our tradition that religion is an outside issue in our rooms. A, a spiritual life is our primary inside issue. But uh, in terms of specific religions, it's, it's really an outside issue. But I, I would certainly be happy to... Um, to answer that question more fully in a different context than here. Um, The notes that you wrote, what I think they probably refer back to is my talking about how, you know, an overly full schedule, incessant demands and opportunities and obligations can can leach into the space that I need to stay alive. That spiritual space, that conscious contact with the God of my understanding. The contemplative path, um, which, you know, is certainly like most of the topics in life can now probably be Googled and bring up a lot of information on any, you know, particular kind of thing that might interest you. Um, Pursuing any spiritual path requires time. And one of the big challenges I experience in this point in my recovery, and it's an irony really, is that the blessings that have come to me through recovery have allowed me to be useful in ways that never existed before, to relish life in ways that I wasn't free to before. Um, So life has become very full. Oh, and I also should have mentioned Honey, I left this one out. One of the sink or swim moments 
was when I had a experience a traumatic brain injury doing one of the things that I love best, which is hiking up in the North Country, Minnesota bordering Canada, crossing a stream, lost my balance and fell backward, nothing to stop me and my head smashed against the rocks. And when it took me several years to realize that the memory I had while I was unconscious, there were two things about it. Number one, time didn't exist in the usual sense. And I was awake. And it was infinite blackness, and the blackness was luminous. The darkness had a luminosity to it. And it took me two years to figure that out. I thought, well, how could I see that it was all dark? If, and it was infinite darkness, how could I see that? I thought, well, it's because there was a cast of light on the darkness. Because if you stand in a dark closet, a fully dark room, you can't see anything, including what's around you. And I won't talk a lot more about it now, but even though the injuries, there was, there was bleeding and, um, I was hospitalized, and but as I've gone back to that experience, I remember saying at that time, oh, this must mean that I died because, and I'm, I'm sorry about that. I wasn't angry or resentful. I was just, I'm sorry. I, I wasn't, I didn't feel really ready to leave yet. Life was getting good. And... And just at that time, I started experiencing sensations in my body, beginning with my toes, and very slowly working its way up as if tea were being poured into a cup in a perfect symmetry of sensation returning until very slowly it came up my whole body. And then when it came to my eyes, my eyes opened and the sky was over me. That was a spiritual experience for me. I was given another chance at life for which I am deeply grateful. And when I finally woke up in the hospital, it was, I think, three in the morning and I couldn't move. I had other injuries and there wasn't, I couldn't. Finally, a nurse came in and she said, well, you should eat something, but we, it was a small hospital. This is Grand Marais, Minnesota. Um, I'll go to the nurse's station and just see if there's anything. And she came back with a tray full of things, only several of which I could eat. The other things I could not eat. There was no way I could call my sponsor or anybody else. I couldn't move there, couldn't get to a phone. I'd never been in that situation before. I think that was what the twelfth year of my of my abstinence, continuous abstinence. And I prayed and I thought, do the next right thing. Your sponsor would want you to eat something here in this situation. It seems like the right thing to do. So just eat what you can eat from this tray and leave the rest and turn it over. And, and that's what I did. 
Um, all of that to me was a spiritual experience. I, but I find that the blessings of recovery have come in such a way that I have opportunities I never had before. I have, I, my passion for writing poetry is rekindled. I'm a poet. In all the years of being neck deep in addiction, I wasn't writing. Now I have a flow of poetry that comes unheeded. I have to keep paper by me to capture it. I, I am in the stream of life. I am of service. I was also diagnosed with a seizure disorder resulting from the scar tissue from the brain injury two years ago. That has had another major impact. I was in outpatient rehab for a year and a half after the brain injury. Um, it was a long road back. I was incapable of weighing and measuring for the first maybe six or eight months. My fellowship and other people brought weighed and measured meals to me. My abstinence from the moment I woke up in that hospital room was never in question, never. It was the most important thing without exception to the best of my ability. It wasn't a big deal. It was just clear, this is how I live. I entered outpatient rehabilitation, which is very hard. They didn't even start physical therapy for nine months because of the side effects from any exertion. Um, without self-pity, um, without a sense of dread about the future, there were times that I felt like crying. There were times that I felt discouraged but I never felt despair. And what I most always felt was one foot in front of the other. We only do one day at a time. Stay out of tomorrow. That's not where you're living. You will only ever have one day at a time. That's how we roll, one day at a time. And that's how I lived. And it was not awful. And now when I look back of that out-of-body experience where obviously my consciousness left my physical body for a place of wonder, I can't explain that. Um, I, it was more confirmation to me that this way of life is more important to me than anything that could interfere with it, but it also has brought blessings and opportunities that can, and with side effects, which still recur if I get too tired from the brain injury, side effects which can undermine my effectiveness, my health, and my ability to be of service um, and stay well and to be healthy. So um, I think that's, that's how I, if, if the, is there any part of your question I did not answer, Sharon? Star one to unmute, Sharon. No, uh, Victoria, yes, your, 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 your answer was poetic. 
and I will contemplate it in that way. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. And our final question for this morning comes from Leslie M. Star one to unmute, Leslie. Good morning. This is Leslie M. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Long Island, New York, and I just wanted to thank you, Leah, for your service. And Victoria, um, you know, your story has really moved me this morning, and I've been struggling with something um, that I'm trying to force uh, a solution to um, because I'm afraid. And I made the error because I was afraid. And I've heard a lot of that in your story. Um, And, you know, I was trying to force something this morning. Uh, This was one of my sisters. And um, I realized that I can't do that. Um, And so after I I was trying to push that, I felt the need to um, share this on the line and just say, um, you know, how do you handle fear today? I've done my amends. Um, you know, this mistake that I made, I've already, you know, I've made my amends for that. And now I know that I'm in that period of waiting um, for the other person. And sometimes I feel led to make it take an action, and then I feel fear again. And I was just wondering if you could uh, speak on that just a moment. Thank you. Oh, I'd be happy to speak on that. I can so personally identify with that. You know, the issue that I hear you talking about, even though it sounds like the issue is having to wait, mm. and I have been there. I, I was there with my ninth step. I, I, I have been there many times on this recovery road, and I've come to realize it isn't really about the waiting. It's about the need, my need for control. Mm. And my need for control says, I need an answer now so that I can feel all right. I need an answer now. I need an ans- the, I need the answer that I need, not the answer that I don't want. You know, that my whole life in the disease was about self-centered control, trying to have it, and most of the time failing to succeed, but it is definitely a place I can fall back to. And it's been very helpful to remind myself when I am, it's not the weight, really, that's causing me the greatest difficulty. It is the resurgence of that old need to run the show, to control things, you know, to direct the actors and when I can bring that awareness back and recognize how futile that always was and how it is a way that I can still try to play God and I am not God. And when I've had enough experiences of things unfolding in ways and never, almost never on my timeline, but unfolding in ways that I couldn't have even dreamed up to ask for. I have recognized it is an incredibly wonderful thing that I am not in control. If Victoria was in control of her life, it would bear no resemblance to who you're hearing speak today at all. I would be running the bus off the road 
maybe not every time, but often enough, you know, that I would be land, I and my life would be landing in a heap. So that's very helpful for me to recognize the issue of control because then I can surrender the control. God, I am not running things today. Thy will, not mine, be done. But and the relief isn't, it's been in the surrender for me. Thank you. Good words to end on. Thank you very much, Leslie M., for the question. Everybody who asked questions this morning, thank you. And, of course, Victoria, thank you for your beautiful presentation and for carrying such a message of depth and weight through your experience of these transforming 12 steps. Thank you for your service this morning. Let's close from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.